Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to Jenna Story, We Agreed to Do This, a podcast about genocide and the field of genocide studies. I'm your host, historian John Lestrange. Let's get into it. So last month, we talked about the Allport scale, the Pyramid of Hate, and we touched briefly on Gregory Stanton's 10 stages of genocide. This month, we're going to be focusing on Stanton's 10th stage of genocide, denial. Now, Stanton and many other genocide scholars view denial not as something that happens after a genocide is over, but the final stage of it, and something that occurs not just after the killing, but during the genocide itself. Stanton calls genocide denial one of the surest indicators of future genocide, the idea being the same as with regular criminal activity. Getting away with a crime can make you more likely to repeat it. Genocide denial re-victimizes the targets of genocide and seeks to kill memory instead of the physical body of the group. This makes it no less heinous than genocide itself. Genocide denial doesn't take only one form. It's not as simple as a flat denial of the events, a statement that they simply didn't happen. Israel Charney, an Israeli psychologist, genocide scholar, and the co-founder of the Institute on the Holocaust and Genocide in Jerusalem, outlined 12 methods of denial in the Encyclopedia of Genocide. We're not going to go over all 12 forms of denial here, but we will touch on a few of them. Back in 2005, Gregory Stanton wrote a paper wherein he examined those 12 methods and applied them all to the Darfur Genocide. The Darfur Genocide had begun on February 23, 2003, and is still technically ongoing. We're going to go into far more detail about it in a later episode, but for now we can merely say that the Darfur Genocide is the systematic killing of Darfuri men, women, and children in western Sudan. It has become known as the first genocide of the 21st century. The genocide is being carried out against the Fur, Masalit, and Zagawa tribes, and has led the International Criminal Court to indict several people for crimes against humanity, rape, forced transfer, and torture. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go over a few of the 12 methods that Charney outlines in the Encyclopedia of Genocide and the methods that Stanton talks about in his paper. Uh, and then we're going to give some examples about people who have denied genocide in this way so that we can get a broader overview of how these methods are utilized. That way you can hopefully recognize them when they happen in the future or when they're happening right now. So the first method we're going to talk about is 
to question or minimize the statistics. Stanton points out in a 2005 paper on genocide denial that Sudan's foreign minister, Mustaf Osman Ismail, said on the 9th of September 2004 that no more than 5,000 people had been killed in Darfur since February 2003. On the other hand, the conservative estimate that the UN uses is 50,000 people in that same time frame. So when you deny genocide in this way, you question the validity of the statistics or you minimize them, saying that not nearly as many people died as were originally thought. David Irving, a well-known British Holocaust denier, is amongst those who denounce the Holocaust by saying that far fewer than 6 million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. Irving was actually arrested in Austria in 2005 for Holocaust denial. He was sentenced in 2006 for three years in prison, but only served 13 months of his sentence. Personally, I think that he should have served far longer than three years for his heinous denial of the Holocaust, but I'm not in charge of the laws in Austria. One of the most common forms of Holocaust denial is to say that perhaps only one-tenth of the reported number of Jews were actually killed, or to simply say that six million Jews couldn't have been killed because there weren't six million Jews in Europe to begin with, which is absolutely ridiculous, but genocide denial in any form is completely ridiculous. In 2014, the BBC released a documentary called Rwanda, The Untold Story, in which they suggested that the majority of the genocide victims were not the Tutsi, but were actually members of the Hutu ethnic group. Following the release of that documentary, the Rwandan parliament banned the BBC from the country, a decision that I can't blame them for at all. We're going to move on to a second method now. Uh, this is actually just method number two in Israel Israel-Charney's book, The Encyclopedia of Genocide. It's to attack the motivation of the truth-tellers. Stanton has this to say about Darfur. They will dismiss U.S. charges as products of election year politics in America or of anti-Islamic imperialists who have demonstrated their hatred of Arabs in Iraq at Abu Ghraib prison. It's aimed to appeal to fellow Islamic countries like Algeria and Pakistan. So we can't be telling the truth about the genocide when we bring it up because we have ulterior motives for doing this. We don't actually care about the victims. These people will say we just care about making our enemies look bad or scoring points in an election year. Holocaust denialists often call the Holocaust a deliberate hoax created by a Jewish conspiracy designed to advance Jewish interests. Armenian genocide denialists often pass it off as anti-Turkish propaganda or an Armenian conspiracy. Many Western genocide studies scholars characterize reports of deaths during the Cambodian genocide as quote-unquote tales told by refugees and American propaganda. The Pakistani government accuses reporters who report on the genocide uh, as being enemy agents. Uh, that last one is the genocide that happened in Bangladesh um, back in the 70s. The third method is to claim that the deaths were inadvertent. They were an accident. Deaths were a result of famine, migration, or disease, not because of willful murder. This is the usual line given to relief officials to turn the blame back on them for not supplying more assistance, hypocritically ignoring the systemic obstruction the Sudanese government has placed in the way of visas for humanitarian workers and delivery of food and medicine. We find things like this happen very often in instances of refugee camps inside countries. We had something similar happen in North Korea back in the 90s when they dealt with their Great Famine. 
millions of dollars of relief aid and supplies were sent to the North Korean government to be distributed to people, you know, as they needed it. But the government refused to give certain classes of people that they deemed undesirable this aid and then claimed that they just simply weren't given enough. We tend to see method three most often when talking about genocidal famines. The Holodomor, also known as the Terror Famine, was a man-made famine in Ukraine when it was under the rule of Joseph Stalin. The Soviets initially tried denying that the Holodomor occurred at all, but many scholars deny that it was a genocide because of how the deaths occurred. It wasn't the result of a willful campaign of mass slaughter like in the Holocaust or the Armenian Genocide or the Rwandan Genocide. These Ukrainian victims died of famine. They died of starvation. Mention of the famine in the Soviet Union became punishable with a five-year term in the gulags, blaming the authorities for the famine would result in death. Now, both of those are basically death sentences because no one really survives a five-year term in the gulags. They were just absolutely horrible forced labor camps in the cold of Siberia. Um, the idea of surviving five years in the gulags would be laughable if the entire conceit of them wasn't so horrifying. This is also how the Irish potato famine is dismissed as not being a genocide because there was no willful campaign by the British government to wipe out the Irish. There was really only one variety of potato in Ireland at the time, the Irish lumper. So when the blight hit, it wiped out the majority of the crop because it only had one variety of potato to contend with. Ireland, at the time under the rule of Great Britain, was supposed to receive aid from them, but this aid came in the form of mostly corn, which doesn't really have much in the way of nutritional benefit. So the Irish starved in mass. Method four is to emphasize the strangeness of the victims, whether they be classified as infidels, primitive tribalists, or of another race and caste, they are unlike us. Thus, the highly influential Sudanese Arab gathering considers black Africans to be, I honestly, I, I can't pronounce this word. It's spelled A-B-D. Um, just, you know, pronounce that however you like. It means male slaves and Kadim, K-A-H-D-I-M, female slaves. So that's what the Sudanese considered black Africans. They were just slaves. And the Arab gathering advocated their exclusion from Sudanese public life. For Americans or Europeans, such dehumanization is expressed as they're Africans. They do this sort of things to each other. It's just intertribal conflict, not something we can really do anything about or should really care about. This form of denial largely involves the further dehumanization of the group. The insistence that what happened can't be genocide because the victims aren't real people. Holocaust denial is based in continued anti-Semitism, so the majority of Holocaust denial takes place in areas that also have high levels of anti-Semitism. This particular form of denial points far more clearly to the possibility of a future genocide because of how much it relies on continued dehumanization. A more domestic example would be the myth of black-on-black -black crime that's used by far-right talking heads in response to police brutality. We're going to skip over method five, 
of genocide denial, and we're going to move on to method six, blame out-of-control forces for the killings. The success of this tactic was demonstrated in UN Security Council Resolution 1556, which blames the killings uh, in Sudan on the Janjaweed militias and actually demands that the Sudanese government disarm the Janjaweed and bring their leaders to justice. In fact, it was the Sudanese government that had armed the Janjaweed in the first place and continues to protect them. But by having an organization like the Janjaweed, who is technically just outside of government control, the uh, government can then pass the buck, as it were. Many genocidal regimes set up special organizations who they can use as scapegoats in the event that they need them. The Ottoman government just called theirs uh, the special organization. It was made up of prisoners that they had released from prison. They took rapists and murderers and some of the most violent criminals that they had in prison, and they released them and put them in charge of escorting Armenians on marches from their homes deep into the Syrian desert. That way, when word got out of these groups of Armenians being killed in mass, they could blame it on the prisoners. The Nazis set up the Einsatzgruppen uh, and groups like Reserve Police Battalion 101. Reserve Police Battalion 101 is a group of particular note that we'll talk about in more detail when we talk about the Holocaust in a few months. But it was a group of mostly middle-aged career men who enlisted so that they could, you know, help protect Germany. They weren't hardened soldiers. They weren't monsters by any stretch of the imagination. They were literally your average German citizen, many of whom uh, dealt with the horrors of what they did by dipping heavily into alcoholism and drug abuse. But again, we'll talk more about that in a later episode. Groups like the Ottoman Special Organization and the Nazi Einsatzgruppen, despite being supplied by the government, are created so that they can be denounced when or if the genocide comes to light. That way it's not really genocide, or at least it's not the government's fault that it's genocide. We're going to jump all the way down to method 10 here, which is what happened doesn't actually fit the definition of genocide. Definitionalist denial is most common amongst lawyers and policymakers who want to avoid intervention beyond provision of humanitarian aid. Many times, people refuse to call something genocide and instead use the term ethnic cleansing or call what's happening acts of genocide. The fallacy of the distinction is evident in Darfur, where the intent of the Sudanese government and their Janjaweed militias was to drive the Fur, uh, Masalit, and Zagawa black African farmers off of their ancestral lands, what we would call an ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing focuses more on the expulsion of the group and not on their destruction. According to Justin McCarthy, an American historian at the University of Louisville, the Armenian Genocide was actually a two-sided battle more akin to a civil war than a genocide. The Ottoman government also uses the it-was-a-civil-war tactic when talking about the Armenian Genocide, and they point to the fact that there was a significant amount of Armenian resistance to the genocide, right? They use the resistance to the genocide as an indication that it wasn't a genocide, it was a civil war. They also point to the fact that there were a number of ethnically Russian Armenians who were fighting in the Russian army against them, and that they feared that the Persian Armenians living in the Ottoman Empire would link up with their Russian counterparts and act as spies and saboteurs inside the great empire. Back in 1994, 
During the Rwandan genocide, the Clinton administration gave their spokespeople specific instructions to never refer to what was happening in Rwanda as genocide, but to always preface it with acts of. If you go to YouTube and you search for Christine Shelley, acts of genocide, you can see a clip from a press briefing that Christine Shelley, the State Department spokesperson, wherein she uh, referred specifically to what was happening in Rwanda as acts of genocide. Uh, and she's asked by reporters if she was given specific instructions to never refer to it as genocide in isolation or how many acts of genocide does it take to make a genocide. And then there's about 14 or so seconds of her stumbling through a non-answer. What's really cool about, or cool's not the right word, this uh, scene in real life actually inspired a scene in an episode of The West Wing. One of the things that Aaron Sorkin liked to do when writing episodes of The West Wing was to take real historical events and then turn them into a fictionalized version of themselves. So there is a brief arc in season two of The West Wing dealing with a issue of genocide in the fictional African country of Equatorial Kundu. It's basically the Rwandan genocide conflict, and the scene with Christine Shelley and the White House press corps is mirrored in a scene with the White House press secretary, C.J. Craig, and her press corps, wherein she also refers to what's happening in Equatorial Kundu as acts of genocide, and it's almost a verbatim uh, repetition of that scene with Shelley in the White House press corps. It takes place in one of the two episodes. It's either Inauguration Part 1 or Inauguration Over There Part 2. I can't remember exactly which episode it is because I haven't uh, had an opportunity to re-watch The West Wing recently, but I just go watch The West Wing. You can stop watching it once Martin Sheen's character starts wearing three-piece suits. Uh, I think it's sometime in season five because Aaron Sorkin stops being the showrunner there and the show really takes a distinct downturn at that point. But before that, it's it's generally a very, very good show with an amazing cast. And I'm getting a little off topic here. So we're going to get back into method 10 of genocide denial. What happened doesn't fit the definition of genocide. Peter Erlander questions whether or not the Rwandan genocide was planned and so questions whether or not it was a genocide at all. He was arrested for his genocide denial. There are a number of countries around the world where genocide denial is illegal, and we're going to talk about some of them a bit later. Method 11 is to blame the victims. The Sudanese government claims that it's simply fighting an insurrection by a rebel movement comprised of bandits who themselves commit war crimes. The Armenian genocide is often denied by pointing out that the Ottoman Empire was fighting a war against Russia which contained a number of ethnic Armenians, and so the actions they took were in response to that. By portraying these situations as civil wars rather than genocide, the perpetrators appeal to the common misunderstanding that the two are mutually exclusive. People tend to assume that genocide and war can't happen at the same time. This ignores the fact that genocide and war often go hand in hand. War is used as a smokescreen for genocide all the time. And genocide isn't merely killings. It's killings 
targeted at a specific group of people with the intent to destroy them in whole or in part. It's also, you know, severe bodily or mental harm to a group, forcibly removing children from a group and transferring them to another group. Actions designed to limit births within a group, right? And the other things that we discussed in our first episode when we defined genocide. Genocide can and absolutely does happen in the context of war. Civil wars or armed resistance do not negate genocide. It's not only a genocide if the victim group sits passively and allows it to happen. Resistance never negates the horror of what is happening. Now, I know that we said earlier that genocide denial isn't simply just saying that it didn't happen, but a flat denial of events is still a form of genocide denial that occurs fairly often. A former UN representative in Rwanda, Jacques Roger Boubou, B-O-O-H hyphen B-O-O-H, declared that to claim that a genocide occurred is closer to the politics of surrealism than to the truth. It is the official policy of the governments of Turkey and Azerbaijan to deny that the Armenian genocide ever took place at all. Many Holocaust denialists often claim that the Holocaust was a myth and that any documentary evidence was utterly fabricated. The report about Case Srebrenica, an official report put together by Darko Trifunovic for the Serbian government, denied that the massacre at Srebrenica, widely considered a genocide, ever occurred. In the West, the United States and Western Europe, the Holocaust is held up as the prime example of genocide. It's required to teach about the Holocaust in schools in California, Florida, Illinois, New Jersey, and New York. You have to teach it, you have to talk about it every single year in history class. Laws requiring Holocaust education also exist in countries like Austria, France, Germany, Israel, the Netherlands, Poland, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. You'll notice that the countries on this list are either countries who directly participated in the Holocaust or who were invaded by the Nazis during World War II and whose Jewish populations were decimated by that horror. However, once you leave the sphere of European influence, what is generally referred to as the Western world, the Holocaust becomes less and less important to those people's experiences with and understanding of genocide studies. I had a former professor when I was in uh, my master's degree program at Kane University, Dr. Sue Grunwald, who spent some time in Bangladesh teaching them about the Holocaust, and the overwhelming majority of the students that she dealt with there had never really heard about the Holocaust. Not because the Holocaust is denied by the government of Bangladesh, but because Bangladesh dealt with its own genocide back in the 70s, and that's the one that they primarily teach. Once you leave the European sphere of influence, the Holocaust is no longer the prime example of genocide, and most countries have their own example of genocide that they have dealt with or are dealing with and that they teach their students. The Anti-Defamation League does a survey that they call the Global 100 every few years or so, and the Global 100 survey indicates that 35% of people surveyed haven't heard of the Holocaust. 
the data in the survey is a result of 53,100 total interviews among the citizens aged 18 and over across 101 countries and the West Bank and Gaza. The expected margin of sampling error for the weighed global average is uh, plus 0.97%, which, as I understand it, is an acceptable margin of error. This survey doesn't indicate that any of those people are Holocaust deniers, just that there are places in the world where the Holocaust isn't given as much weight. The survey does indicate that roughly 26% of the people surveyed hold anti-Semitic views. That works out to be about 1.09 billion adults around the world who hold anti-Semitic views and are willing to talk about it in a survey. While genocide denial can be found all over the world, it rarely becomes official government policy. Turkey is the only country that I could find that has a law in place outlawing discussion of the Armenian Genocide. As early as 1926, Turkey passed Article 159, which made it illegal to insult, embarrass, or denigrate Turkey, the Turkish nation, or the government of Turkey. Today, that law has been replaced by Turkish Penal Code 301, which basically says the same thing. What this law means in practice is that discussing the Armenian Genocide is illegal, as it's seen as denigrating the nation of Turkey. Punishment for breaking this law can carry a jail sentence of six months to two years. And as utterly ridiculous as that law seems, there have been cases where it has been used. The most high profile of which were the multiple arrests of Hrant Dink, a Turkish-Armenian journalist. Dink was arrested three times for violation of Article 301. He was acquitted the first time, convicted and given a suspended six-month sentence the second time, and was assassinated by a Turkish nationalist before charges could be pressed for the third. He was assassinated on January 17, 2007, and since then his son has also received death threats for reprinting his father's words. A lot of attention is going to be given to Turkey during this episode because Turkey is the only country that I could find that has an official policy of genocide denial. And I'm gonna just get this in right now and earn that explicit tag. Fuck Turkey. It is absolutely abhorrent that they have a policy of genocide denial that over a hundred years since the Armenian genocide began, and they still actively deny that the genocide took place, and they refuse to take any kind of responsibility for it or begin to make reparations. It's disgusting. So just as there are laws in Turkey that make discussing a particular genocide illegal, there are laws in a number of countries that make genocide denial illegal, and thankfully there are far more of the latter. Here's a list of countries with laws against Holocaust or genocide denial. Austria, Belgium, the Czech Republic, France, Germany, Hungary, Israel, Italy, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Poland, Romania, Russia, Slovakia, and Spain. There are other countries where Holocaust denial isn't expressly illegal in and of itself, but where it's still considered illegal and punished under hate speech laws. Laws against Holocaust denial have been proposed in far more countries, including the US and the UK, but these proposals have been met with opposition from civil rights advocates as they are said to violate free speech which, let me just say this right now, is absolute bullshit. Noam Chomsky had this to say on the subject. 
It seems to me something of a scandal that it's even necessary to debate these issues two centuries after Voltaire defended the right of free expression for views he detested. It is a poor service to the memory of the victims of the Holocaust to adopt a central doctrine of their murderers. So let me just say this now, again earning that explicit tag, uh, fuck you Noam Chomsky. The issue is that when people say that we can't make genocide denial or hate speech illegal because it would violate the free speech of the speakers, we're making a statement that we think the ability to voice genocidal rhetoric is more important than the life and peace of mind of the victims. In the West, especially here in the United States, we tend to hold up free speech as the single most important right that society has. The U.S. enshrined freedom of speech in the Constitution in order to ensure that their citizenry would be able to criticize their government without having to worry about being arrested for voicing their opinions. When the United States was first founded, we had fought a war for independence against a tyrannical king, under whose rule it was considered treason to voice uh, any strong critique of the government, government policy, or King George III. And so we were very wary of a government being able to arrest or detain citizens for voicing legitimate critiques, or any kind of critique really, against the government. Opinions are something like, I prefer coffee to tea. That's just an example, I prefer coffee and tea and hot chocolate. Opinions are not the Holocaust never happened or we should create a white ethnostate. Those aren't opinions. Those are inherently violent ideas. They have a desire for genocide at their core, and we need to, as a society, accept that those things are unacceptable and should be criminalized. We are running into this issue currently in the United States with issues of the alt-right, the white supremacists and neo-Nazis who are currently roaming our streets, and a large number of other issues where it's considered uncouth uh, to talk about punching these individuals for sharing those ideas. You should absolutely punch a Nazi. Now, keep in mind that if you do this, you should have an exit strategy ready or some kind of backup, and you should be aware that assault is still a crime and that you can face criminal charges for this. However, they threw the first punch. Mind you, it was a metaphoric and rhetoric one, but they threw the first punch. The ideas uh, and values of these groups are inherently violent. They call for the destruction of a particular group of people, or in some cases for all groups of people who are not purely white. Those violent ideas sometimes need to be met with violence. Sometimes when you're fighting for your rights or the rights of other people, you need to actually fight. There's an excerpt from a speech given by a man named John Finch in Iowa City in 1882 that captures this idea perfectly. Now, when Finch gave this speech, he was talking about, he was a prohibitionist. And he was using this to uh, demonize the inherent violence of alcohol on the community and family values. But it applies to our situation even better. Finch says, is this not a free country? And his um, fictional interlocutor says, yes, sir. Have I not a right to swing my arm? Yes, but your right to swing your arm leaves off where my right not to have my nose struck begins. Basically, what Finch was saying was that your right to drink 
ends at the point where it damages the community and family values. But it again applies to our situation even better. Your right to free speech ends where it begins to infringe upon the rights of other people to live their lives unmolested by those who would wish their entire culture destroyed. Before anything else in this country, we hold the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness above all others. And your right to, and many people's right to, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness are being infringed upon by people who are voicing virulent hate speech or who are denying genocide. And the people who are voicing that hate speech or are denying those genocides should be put in jail for their views. Gregory Stanton called denial the 10th stage of genocide, and he was absolutely right. Denial is a furthering of the violence of genocide. It denies the entire experience of a people who went through the worst traumas of human history. It should be illegal everywhere on the planet, but the free speech debate will continue to stand in the way of stopping this violence. Free speech has become, to many people, more important than human lives, and we should all be ashamed of our society for that. The world will continue to grapple with issues of genocide denial for the foreseeable future, both with events that are currently happening in our society where people deny that they are genocide or genocidal in nature, and with regards to past genocides. It's an unfortunate reality of our society, and it's very difficult to get people to recognize these horrors while they're happening and even after they have already finished. But we'll continue to do our best to find some way to move forward with this, to educate people who can be educated, and to silence the people who can't be. Yes, you heard it here first. I absolutely believe in censoring these ideas. Next month will be a wrap on our very first arc, uh, our four-episode arc on metadata in concerns to the field of genocide studies, wherein we will be discussing best practices in prevention and answering the question, is it even possible to prevent genocides? I have some big news. We got uh, our very first review on Apple Podcasts. This review came in on the 18th of May, uh, and I didn't find it until just a few days ago, so I guess I should check that more often. Not that another one came in during that time. It's a five-star review, and thank you very much for that. It's greatly appreciated. Uh, the name on this review is The Violet Protégé. I have no idea who that is. So The Violet Protégé, if you are listening to this episode... Shoot me a message through the email that I'll say later in this outro or on Facebook so that I can thank you personally. But I'm going to read this review here and then we'll finish up our outro. Well worth your time. After having listened to the first two episodes of Jenna's Story, I would like to express that Professor Lestrange's information and perspectives are well-researched and documented. This podcast is certainly enlightening. Our host's timber and vernacular proves easy to listen to and digest, and production quality is more than adequate. Well, thank you for that. I try and steer clear of jargon when making these episodes, or at least to then uh, immediately define that jargon, because I don't want these episodes to be listened to by other scholars in the field, although they're welcome to. I want your average layperson to listen to this episode and to be able to understand what's happening. Um, and as to the production quality, you can thank my darling wife, Mary Jane Bradley. I use her microphone that she uses 
for the 12 podcasts that she's a part of, but the review continues. If you have the faintest interest in the topic, Jenna's story is worth your time. You even get bonus history and topics and cultures that relate to genocide. Happy listening. Well, thank you, the Violet Protégé, for that. Again, if I know you personally, please reach out to me so that I can thank you personally, because that was very, very heartwarming to find and read. To know that there's at least one person out there who enjoys listening to me ramble on about genocide and who is getting some benefit and enjoyment out of this, other than me. If I just wind up doing this for me, that's fine. I'm going to make my students listen to episodes of this podcast uh, next semester when I start teaching. So, um, you know, they'll at least get some benefit out of this. If you like what you heard here, follow us on social media at Pod on Twitter facebook.com slash genistorypod, or send us an email at genistorypod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or topics that you'd like to hear about. If you'd like more of just me in your life, you can find me on Twitter at Prof. John Strange and on Facebook at John Lestrange colon historian. If you're looking for something to read during this quarantine, you can find both of my books, Representations of Genocide in Cartoons and Representations of Genocide in Video Games on Amazon. They are available in paperback and ebook formats. Please give those a rate and review while you're at it. Rate and review, subscribe to Jenna's Story. We agreed to do this on your favorite podcatcher if you can. It helps us get seen so other people can find us. Finally, thank you to Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech for our show music. Thank you to the app Hatchful and to my amazing wife for designing and then editing our logo. I'm John, and this is Jenna's Story. We agreed to do this. Until next month, goodbye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.